We'll open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 12. We continue in our lengthy study of this book, and we're in a transitional period here in the section of the patriarchs. As we continue our study of Abram, this section of Genesis is the sixth book of the ten that are laid out for us in the book of Genesis. Each of these books is marked by the generations of the Hebrew word, the Toledot. And so this is the sixth book that we're examining, and it introduces to us this key figure, the person of Abram, whose name would later be changed to Abraham. And Abraham is the first of several patriarchs that we'll be looking at over the months ahead. So we're looking at the descendants of Terah, the key characters that were introduced to us in the brief genealogy of chapter 11, were Abram, the exalted father, Lot, his nephew, the son of his brother Haran, and then Sarai, Abram's barren wife. We learn about the move that Terah and his family have undergone out of Ur of the Chaldeans on the way to Canaan. What isn't made incredibly clear to us is how this move came about. Scripture consistently says that Abram was called while he was in Ur of the Chaldeans, yet this call is not expressed to us until after this movement is already underway. So many believe the call came to Abram while still in Ur. He led his family to relocate. They were distracted in Haran for an indeterminate amount of time. Haran, like Ur, also celebrated the worship of the moon god. It was a central part of the worship of the moon god in these two places. And so in the midst of Abram's lengthy pagan background, He is confronted by the one true God who calls him to go to the land that he will be shown, not knowing where this is going to be, how long it's going to take to get there, what it's going to be like. He simply calls Abram to leave the land that God would later to and leave the land and go to the land that he would that would be revealed to him. And this land would become the beginning point for the nation of Israel. So the purpose of this call was to lead the father of the future nation of Israel to the land that God was going to give to his chosen people, Israel. This call required that Abram leave his tribe, his clan, and his family, which is for centuries the way peoples understood their origins and who they belonged to. So tribe is the land of your people, the United States, if you will. Clan would be your people, fellow Pennsylvanians, if you will. And then family is your inner circle of relation, your nuclear family. And Abram is being asked to leave it all behind, to go to a land that God is going to show him. And when he gets to this land, God is going to speak and let Abram know that he has finally arrived. This call to Abram in many ways is like the call of the gospel before there ever was a gospel. The call of the gospel is to leave everything in order to follow Christ, and Abram willingly left everything in order to follow the call of God. This call is followed by three very significant promises that God makes to Abram, which become central to Israel's existence and their understanding. These are central to the patriarchal narratives that we're going to look at in all of Genesis, and they are also central to the Old Testament as a whole. These promises extended in the call of Abram include three components 
that explain the thematic development of the remainder of the book of Genesis and really much of the Old Testament. Those are land, nation, and blessing. Abram is just a pagan of pagans in the land of Ur. There is no nation of Israel. He has no children. He has no progeny. And it is in this call that God makes the promise to him, I'm going to give you a land for your descendants. You're going to be the father of a great nation. And all of the world will be blessed through you. What would you, how would you respond to such a call? What would be your reaction? To have this theophany, to have this appearance of God, to hear a voice, to see a vision, to be visited by an angel. We're not just, it's not really told to us how this happened. But these are the promises that God has made to Abram. And I'm wondering what we would think if such a call was given to us. God is giving the descendants of Abram the land that will eventually be shown to him. Abram, although 75 years old and married to a barren woman is going to be the father of a great nation, and his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the skies. Now, if this was you, would you scoff? Would you laugh as Sarai later did? Would you marvel? Would you fall on your knees? Abram simply heard this and responded in absolute obedience. Abram would never live to see the formation of this great nation. That would come much later under the leadership of Moses, who is actually writing the Genesis account. And Abram himself would be greatly blessed, and through him all the families of the earth would be blessed in this sense. The global blessing that is realized... Through the Messiah, the Savior of the world, who would come through the nation of Israel and through the line of Abram, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, as promised in Genesis 3.15, is now foreshadowed and highlighted right here in the line of Abram, who would be a global blessing to every family. You know, all around our world today, people are gathering the worship from nations and tongues that we cannot even begin to imagine. And they are recipients of the blessing given to Abram by God because they worship the Messiah who has come from the line of Abram. All of this is wrapped up in our beginning parts here in the book of Genesis. Now we go to a new section here, the journey. Number 5 in our continuing outline. And this morning we're going to read chapter 12 verses 4 through 9 and see what it has for us today. Verse 4, So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his nephew and all the possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Verse 8, Then he proceeded there, from there, to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. So as we look at the journey that is being continued, it originated in Ur of the Chaldeans with Terah, and the whole family, and now we pick up after this 
brief stay in Haran. We have no idea how long they were actually there. And Abram is now continuing the journey to the land of Canaan. Verse 4 again, Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So after spending this indeterminate amount of time in Haran, Abram is continuing his journey towards Canaan. Now I like to do this. I like to show you maps so you can kind of get some pictural I, I image some idea of where what we're talking about here. And so all the way down here is Ur of the Chaldeans near the Persian Gulf. Haran is all the way up here in what was Assyria. And you can see who the um, descendants that came from Noah's three sons, where they had settled. And then this is the journey that Abram is now taking all the way down to Shechem. Now, to give you an idea of modern geography, since we aren't really good with geography, this is a modern picture of this same area. So down here, the Persian Gulf would be the area of Kuwait and Basra, up into middle or southern Syria, and down into what we would now understand to be the nation of Israel. So this is the idea of where they are traveling from and where they've gone through and where they're going to. And this is what it would look like in our modern world today. So to continue in the outline, a couple of things to point out here is that Lot accompanies Abram. We were introduced to him back in the very brief genealogy. Abram's brother Haran fathered Lot. Haran died. Abraham kind of took Lot under his under his wing, if you will, as like a child. And his inclusion here keeps his future involvement with Abram intact. We're going to see more about Lot as we go through the book of Genesis. The second thing that we notice here is that Abram is 75 years old. Now, this is not like it was pre-flood when people lived to be eight, 900 years old. 75 years old is getting up there, probably a little above the average lifespan. And so this is an important time stamp not only to connect back to the genealogies that we were given in chapter 11, but it's also an important timestamp for the eventual fulfillment of the promise that God is going to make in giving to Abram an heir through whom the descendants that would be as numerous as the stars of the skies would eventually come. Abram was to be a father of a great nation. Through him, all of the families of the world be blessed. And as he makes this journey to Canaan, he is 75, fatherless, and married to a woman who cannot have children. Really setting up the stage for the miraculous that is going to be performed by God on behalf of Abram, Sarai, and the eventual nation of Israel. So the first thing that we notice here is that this is a huge obstacle to overcome if Abram is going to be the father of a great nation. Think about it like this. If you were 50 and married to a woman who could not have children and this was your promise... How are you going to overcome that? The likelihood in Abram and Sarai's mind is that we can't have kids. This is what makes this obstacle so significant in Abram's life. It's what makes his faith so great in his willingness to follow God's call with this very physical reality that I'm getting on in age and I can't have any kids, so I don't know how this is going to happen. So the promise of an heir through whom Abram's vast descendants would come is still unfulfilled. And as we know, since we've read the book of Genesis, Abram and Sarai are going to wait an additional 25 years before Isaac is born. 
Abram's going to be a hundred with the pronouncement of the impending birth of this descendant. What does Sarai do? She laughs. Because it's such a ridiculous idea that at this advanced stage of life, they're going to have kids. Come on. You can't be serious. Something's gotta, something else has gotta happen. And as we know, they try to take matters into their own hands. So Abram's faith would be tested. His fallibility is going to be exposed. But Abram will still be known as a great man of faith because he never really wavered in his willingness to follow and do what God had called him to do. Now the next thing that we learned in our outline here, I got a goof up there, letter C, don't look at Marah there, the teacher. Kind of wait on that. Let her see. He arrives in Canaan. Verse 5. Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his nephew and all the possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. So it's important that we recognize what is being included here is that Abram didn't take a test journey he didn't go and leave a bunch of stuff behind and go to kind of see what it's like and maybe I'll come back or I'll send for you if it all was good. He packed it all up. Nothing left behind. And he set out for the land that God was going to show him, still not knowing where it was or when he would get there. He was just going to go trusting that God was going to provide. So they finally arrive in Canaan. And this is an 800-mile journey from Haran. Think about how long it would take to travel 800 miles back in this primitive ancient culture and you would have to assume that Abram has garnered some possessions in the form of livestock so he has to bring this herd. We don't know how big that herd might be. So he's going on this 800 mile journey and that's The known part, he had no idea where this journey was going to actually end. So it's probable that with the livestock and all the possessions that Abram was going to bring, that this would be a very long and a very challenging journey. Now, let me inject this into your thinking. You try to make some connection to you. We know what challenges are like, right? We know what trials and tribulations are like. None of us like the journey, but we like the destination. We like when we finally get there because it's over and we can take a big, deep breath and relax and say, man, I'm glad that's over. But the journey is a nightmare, isn't it? When you're going through the process, when you're learning the lesson, when you're being pruned, when the substitutes in our lives are being pulled away from us, these things that we thought were so important that we couldn't imagine living life without. When all of that is being taken away, that journey is incredibly difficult. So here is Abram going on this incredibly long journey without knowing when it's going to end. He packs it all up. No test journey hinted at in any way, shape, or form. And they finally arrive in Canaan. Now, it also says here that he brought the people he had acquired in Haran. So a casual reading would lead us to believe that Abram picked up some servants or perhaps even some slaves while he was in Haran. But that isn't necessarily the best way to understand that. There's a prominent modern Jewish scholar. His name is Umberto Casuto. And he translates this phrase as the souls they had won in Haran. 
So rather than being the servants, or excuse me, instead of being the people he had acquired, it could be translated the souls that had been won. And in arguing this translation is better exegetically as well as in line with rabbinic interpretation, it would mean that Abram, who had this call from God while in this indeterminate stay in Haran, was preaching and proselytizing the worship of the moon god people and a recognizing and understanding who this one true God actually is. If this is the correct interpretation, Abram is an active evangelist in a center for moon worship and these people willingly follow him to the land that God is going to show him. I think it's an amazing possibility that is being excavated by this modern Jewish scholar. Not only is Abram a man of faith, but he was a man who told others about that faith. Think about that. Hey, I'm going to go to this place. No, I don't know where it is. No, I don't know how long it's going to take to get there. No, I don't know what it's going to be like. But this God appeared to me, and this is a a culture with many, many gods. And this God appeared to me and said... He's going to give me this land and I'm going to be the father of a great nation and you should come along and be a part of that. (laughs) Yeah, right. Let me pack it all up and follow you. We don't know, but it's an interesting proposition that we have to contend with here that this is potentially what is going on. Verse 6 continues, Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. You think that's important that Moses would highlight that? Remember that it is likely that Moses is writing this while they are in the wilderness wandering and they are on the verge of entering into the center of Canaanite land and the Canaanite that Moses and modern Israel are about to encounter is the same Canaanite people that Abram visited while on this call to go to the land that God was going to show them. Moses' inclusion here is very, very important because he wants Israel to understand that these people that you're about to encounter are the same people that our father Abram encountered and we don't need to be afraid of them at all. So arriving in Canaan, we're introduced to the second major obstacle and that is not only is Abram 75 and without an heir, but the land is occupied by the Canaanite. So when God called Abram, I wonder if Abram had any thought about what the land would be like when he when we eventually got there. Would it be lush and green? Would it be great for farming and for for uh, feeding lot, lots of animals? Did he think he was just going to wander into this empty territory and set up life and just kind of stay there for a while? What do you think Abram expected? when God called him to go to this unknown land, and now that Abram's here, he sees that it is not an unpossessed land. It is a highly habited land. Lots and lots of people. Lots and lots of idol worship. I'm wondering what Abram might have been thinking. So I thought about this as I was beginning to think about what Abram's response to this reality might have been. When you go back and think about it, when Abram, excuse me, when Adam was created in the garden and placed there, it was unpossessed. 
It was his for the taking. It was his to enjoy without any obstacles, without any difficulty of any kind. When Noah departed the ark into the new world, it was uninhabited. It was just him, his wife, his three sons and their wives, and they just kind of set up shop and did whatever they were going to do. When the peoples scattered at Babel and went all over the uninhabited world, they had nobody to contend with. And here we have Abram, the great man of faith, leaving his homeland, his people and his family, to go to a land that God would eventually show him, and here it is, in its And it's inhabited, it's inhabited by a people, a numerous people, who worship false gods. Abram is being given a land that is already possessed, which makes believing the promise that God has extended to him all that much more difficult. Think about it. Now fast forward to Moses' day, after spending, after sending out the twelve spies, what did they do? They feared the people. And they said, we could never do this. We'll go in and we're going to get slaughtered. We're not going to, we got to go back to Egypt if we're going to survive, right? Isn't that what they did? Abram arrives in the city of Shechem and specifically at the Oak of Morah. And it's mentioned here for a very intentional reason. Morah means teacher or oracle giver. And so this place that Abram arrives is likely this massive oak tree under which the Canaanites worship their false gods and they probably have set up altars to these false gods. And here we have Abram, the great man of faith, pausing under the oak of Morah. He's worshiping under the same tree. Worshiping under a tree was very common in this era. It's possible that Abram stopped to worship God or he just stopped to take a break under the shade because of the amount of, of uh, shade this large oak would give to him. And it is at this location that the promises are restated to Abram. Letter D in the outline, verse 7, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now remember, Abram's just on a journey. He doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't know when he's going to get there. He pauses under this tree. He likely sees evidence of idol worship under this tree. And it is here that God appears to him again and restates the promises that he made to him who knows how many years before when he called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. So when Abram heard this call, he didn't know where he was going to go. He didn't know when he was going to get there. He was just told to start moving, and that's what he did. Similarly, when Noah was told to build an ark, there was no destination provided. There was not a need for a boat. He was only called to build the ark, which he did. Abram finds himself in the location of the land that was promised, or the promised land... And God speaks to him. Shechem is about 40 miles north of Jerusalem and is geographically central to the land of promise. Here's what that looks like. This is a a picture of the region under the days of Joshua. Right here is Shechem. It's in the center of the promised land. Abram stops under this massive oak tree for rest. 
And God speaks to him, and it is here that Abram builds an altar. It is the first recorded altar that Abram is going to build. And we aren't told this, but this is something that is assumed based upon study of ancient cultures. It is very likely that there would be many other altars under the same tree because of the idol worship that would be present in Shechem. And Abram builds his own altar to the one true God. Not intimidated. Not wavering. God speaks, this is the land I'm going to give to your descendants. And Abram builds an altar. We're not told that Abram was told to build the altar. It was a natural expression from Abram's life based upon this appearance to God and the beginning of the fulfillment of the promises that God had made to him. Now Shechem later becomes a fairly important city in the life of Israel. It became important in respect to religious and political and being a religious and political center for later Israel as expressed in the book of Joshua and also in 1 Kings. And it also has important an important association with later patriarchs of Jacob and Joseph. Now we're going to cross that bridge much, much later. So with the appearance of God and the building of an altar fresh in Abram's experience, we continue in verse 8. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Now we look at the same map again. And if you can see where Shechem is, this is a little bit of a blow up. Here is Bethel and here is I and somewhere in the middle we're told that Abram pitches his tent. The idea here in pitching a tent is not that he just kind of stayed there but it was almost as if he's staking a claim to this particular area. Now when we get into chapter 13 after Abram journeys further south because of the famine and makes his way back. He goes to this very same point. It's almost like Abram is saying, this is where I'm going to set up my house. This is where I am going to stay. So this area is about 20 miles north of Jerusalem. Bethel was also an important place of worship for the Canaanites and their god El, who was the head of the pantheon of false gods that the Canaanites worshipped. It is here that Abram builds another altar. Here we are told that he called upon the name of the Lord. We aren't told that when he built the first altar under the oak tree at Morah. Here he is calling upon the name of the Lord. Abram is not interested in making his own name great, he's going to leave the great name making up to God. Clearly, he is committed to this life of faith and obedience, and it is demonstrated for our, for us and for all readers that he expresses this by calling upon the name of the Lord. It gives the impression of a very outward and a very in, very intentional display of worship. Now we don't know if any of the Canaanites saw this or heard this, but very clearly Abram is staking his claim and the land that God is going to give to his descendants, despite the fact that it is occupied by at least two other altars in the areas that 
Abram has been, and these are very likely central places of worship for the Canaanite. Abram is not intimidated. He is simply exhibiting unwavering faith in the face of very significant obstacles, 75 and without an heir, and a land already possessed with a group of people who worship false gods. Abram simply believes what God has said. He doesn't need a lot of explanation. He doesn't need a lot of validation. He simply believes what God has said. Now, Jacob and later Israel will make claim to the promised land at the same sites that are mentioned here at Shechem and at Bethel I. Years ago, perhaps decades, while still in Ur, God called Abram to leave and go to a land that God will show him. And now God has shown him this land. And Abram is quick to worship and believe what God has said. He did so with the tiniest amount of revelation. Think about it. The tiniest amount of revelation. Go to the land that I'm going to show you. You will become the father of a great nation. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars of the sky. All of the families of earth will be blessed in you. And Abram simply says, okay. What could the church of God accomplish today if we possess the same measure of faith that Abram possessed? We talk about how coddled we are as Americans and the idea of leaving our comfort zone just brings chills to our spine. Oh my gosh, I mean, how do I do that? Go someplace, do something I'm I'm not comfortable with? We don't want to do that at all. we, We don't want to sacrifice. We don't want to leave our comfort zone because we're so petrified by the unknown, by the uncertainty. And here is Abram in this ancient culture with just a sliver of revelation in these immense promises who says, okay, I will go. Here's what the book of Hebrews says about Abram. By faith, Abraham, who obviously had his name changed later, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as if, excuse me, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. This is what the book of Hebrews says about Abram. This is what Abram did. This is why he's in the hall of faith as expressed in Hebrews chapter 11. The passage concludes, our passage today concludes with verse 9. Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. The Negev is south of Judah. It is known as the south country. It is very dry. It is desert-like. It serves as a bit of a segue to what we're going to look at in our next passage where Abram will journey on to Egypt because of a famine that is in the land. And this again paves a way for a foreshadowing that is going to come into the nation of Israel much, much later in their history. So here we have this pagan who has come from a family of pagans living in this pagan world. 
simply receives a simple call to go to a place I'm going to show you, and here's the promises I'm making to you, and this is exactly what he does. The Middle East, as we understand it today, is a validation of the faith that Abram possessed, the promise being fulfilled in his life, although he didn't see it. And at the very, very least, it ought to be a significant confrontation in our lives today about how little we actually trust God. I believe that the majority of Christians today are probably challenged in their faith, challenged in their walk, challenged in their service by some kind of impression that comes from the Spirit through messages they've heard or passages that they've read or prayers that they prayed. And rather than faithfully obeying, are quick to say, now wait a minute. Now, what about, and well, what if, and how's that, and we never see God do what He desires to do in and through our lives? Folks, we have a completed revelation from God. All that God is going to tell us, He's told us in His Word. He will affirm these truths in our lives through the work of the Spirit. But if we sit back and wait for another revelation that comes from God to tell us what we're to do and where we're to go and how it's going to work, we're not going to ever get it. He's told us already, and what we must do is believe that He who promised to be with us will be with us, that He who will make us strong in our weakness will be our strength, And that He who will supernaturally provide all that we need will provide it and just simply follow and obey. This church was established by faith. My being here is the outgrowth of my faith. Our service to Him is the result of our faith in the one true God who has revealed Himself to us at the moment we were saved when we understood the call of the gospel to leave it all and to follow Him. Will we be faithful to do just that? Father, we.